welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Strecker. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. You've seen it before. In nearly every single movie that has come out since the dawn of Hollywood, there's a bit of copy that says something like this. This is a work of fiction. Any similarity to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events, is purely coincidental. This is very strange. Now, obviously it is the case that genre movies, like science fiction or fantasy, are not exactly based on real events. Star Wars, The Lord of the Rings, and Star Trek are all made up, I am sorry to say. But plenty of movies are clearly based on real people or real events. Biopics, historical epics, and also films that advertise themselves about being based on actual things that really happened. Steven Spielberg did not make up World War II for Saving Private Ryan. Sofia Coppola did not create Marie Antoinette for her film titled Marie Antoinette. And Oliver Stone based much of Platoon about his own experiences in Vietnam. So, it's not a coincidence that fiction looks like fact. And yet we have this bit of copy, always buried somewhere in a movie's credits, that says otherwise. Why is that? Well, the answer, as you might suspect from the title of this episode, and the choice of opening music, has a lot to do with Rasputin. You know who Rasputin is. If you're listening to a podcast titled The Weird History Podcast, you probably are, you know, up to date on Rasputin's whole thing, so I'm not going to go into his whole thing here. He was a creepy dude who got in good with the Russian royal family in the last years of Tsarist Russia. You have heard of them. We don't need to talk about Rasputin. We... Okay. Okay. I can hear you on the other side of this podcast thinking... But Joe, I actually do want you to go into Rasputin, at least a little, a little Rasputin, as a treat. Fine, I'm not going to go into his whole biography, but here is one little thing about Rasputin you maybe didn't already know. Uh, he was an early adopter of the telephone, which is weird. When you think of Rasputin, you think of him as being some kind of mystic who's all about the old ways or whatever, you know, entrails and blood and looking real strange. Uh, but in fact, he was fascinated by then-new technology, like the telephone. Oftentimes, when he was talking to Prince Alexei and quote-unquote treating his hemophilia, he wasn't even there. He was just talking to the prince via telephone and doing Rasputin stuff over the phone lines. In a way, Rasputin is an early adopter of telehealth. So, there's that. There is one fun little Rasputin fact for you from today's podcast. But we don't want to talk about real Rasputin so much as we want to talk about movie Rasputin. And Rasputin was in the movies almost as soon as his body was cold. You've probably seen him as the bad guy in a few films, like Anastasia, where an undead Rasputin is portrayed as the puppet master behind the Russian Revolution, which is a thing that happened in the late 90s. And there's also Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy, where he's an immortal Nazi collaborator. Uh, but his career as an on-screen villain goes back 
1917 with a silent film called The Fall of the Romanovs. It was released by an American studio called First National Pictures a mere seven months after the Tsar abdicated. Rasputin also showed up in a 1928 German silent film called Rasputin, The Holy Sinner, and in 1932, another German studio produced Rasputin, Demon with Women, starring Conrad Veidt, who, by the way, is the same guy who starred in expressionist films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and The Man Who Laughs. But what we are concerned with today is another different early Hollywood Rasputin film called Rasputin and the Empress. It was released in 1932 by MGM and starred the Barrymore siblings, all of whom had been stars of stage and silent films before the talkie era. Lionel Barrymore starred as Rasputin himself, and Ethel Barrymore was Tsarina Alexandra. Their brother, John Barrymore, played the fictional Prince Chegodayev, and it's the only film where all three of them, Lionel, Ethel, and John, appear together. The movie is... it's okay. It's not something that I would recommend unless you were to specifically watch it because you were doing a podcast about it. It's fine. Uh, Lionel Barrymore is really the highlight of the movie as Rasputin, as you would expect. He's best known for his role as Mr. Potter in It's a Wonderful Life, and he is a fantastic movie villain. He's a scheming creep who obviously enjoys being slimy, evil, and lecherous, and he's compelling and charismatic and extremely repulsive all at the same time. His siblings, John and Ethel, are fine, but Lionel steals the show as a crazy, creepy, awful monk who played a role in The Downfall of an Empire. And you can tell that he really, really enjoys being evil on screen, which is always something that you want from a villain actor. If you know anything about actual Russian history, the movie's a little bit frustrating, as the revolution is barely in the movie. We see some angry peasants toward the start of the film, but there's hardly anything to indicate that the monarchy is rotting from the inside and becoming less and less legitimate in the eyes of more and more Russians. Peasants, nobles, liberals, communists, anarchists, and even monarchists by that time were fed up with the Tsar, and that's not really present in the movie. What's more, the Tsar himself is portrayed as kind of a sympathetic, tragic figure, one who feels for his people, and also perplexingly in one scene, he says he wants Russia to have a Duma, that is, a representative assembly. The actual Nicholas II was not a fan of democracy and vehemently opposed anything like a parliament or a legislature, even a really token one. He was an absolute monarch, and he saw himself as being literally God's representative on earth. So having him as kind of like an avuncular man of the people who's sort of tragic is at odds with the frankly terrible and also incompetent man that Nicholas II was in real history. And... The film also portrays the Tsar and Tsarina as eventually turning on Rasputin, realizing he's a creep who's done some damage to their government, and they eventually want to get him and his guys out of there. That never actually happened. The royal family were fans of Rasputin to the end, because they were they were bad at their jobs. <laughs> Nicholas and Alexandra were bad people who sucked at ruling Russia. But anyways, two of the most important characters in the film, Prince Chagodayev and Princess Natasha, 
are very clearly based on real people. They are based on Felix Yusupov and his wife, Irina Alexandrova. Now, if the name Yusupov sounds familiar to you regarding Rasputin stuff, it's because Felix Yusupov was the leader of the conspirators who assassinated the Romanov's favorite mystical creeper. And in 1932, when the movie came out, the Yusupovs were still alive. They were living in Paris, and even though the film used fictional names, they recognized on-screen people who were very obviously supposed to be them. And everybody who knew anything about the fall of the Russian Empire recognized the Chagodayev character as being based on Yusupov. I want to read you the lead from the New York Times review of this movie in 1932. Once again, the crafty and malignant Gregory Rasputin serves as the central figure of a motion picture. This time he is impersonated by Lionel Barrymore in a film wherein Ethel Barrymore plays a Tsarina and John Barrymore portrays Prince Chegodayev, who is really intended to represent Prince Yusupov in the melodrama. Unquote. So clearly, there's a fictional character in this movie, but everybody knows who that guy is. And upon seeing themselves up on the silver screen in a film starring all three Barrymore siblings, Felix Yusupov and his wife, Irina Alexandrova, sued Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, then one of the biggest studios in the world. The Yusupovs claimed that the film defamed and libeled them particularly because of a scene that implies Rasputin sexually assaulted the Natasha character, who is clearly supposed to be Irenia. Now, Rasputin sexually assaulted plenty of people in real life, and was apparently a Weinstein-level creeper. But Irenia did not appreciate being portrayed as one of his victims on screen. In real life, nothing like that had ever happened to her. In fact, the real-life Irenia had never even met Rasputin. And this was the crux of their lawsuit in multiple countries. Uh, less of an issue was the whole thing where Felix Yusupov's character, Chagodayev, uh, commits murder. In real life, Yusupov was extremely upfront about killing Rasputin. In fact, shortly after he committed the murder, he just admitted it to local authorities and to the Tsar. The Tsar was furious with Yusupov for killing the monk, but the emperor went easy on the nobleman and exiled Felix from Russia as opposed to imprisoning or killing him. This probably saved Felix and Irina's life, by the way. They were out of the country when everything got all revolution-y. After the revolution, Yusupov cashed in on his reputation as the guy who killed Rasputin. One of the reasons why he was so easily identifiable as Chagodayev in this movie is because he wrote a book. He wrote an autobiography called Lost Splendor, all about how he, Felix Yusupov, planned and executed a murder. In fact, Yusupov's memoir is one of our main sources on Rasputin's death. And boy, does he play it up. The section where he kills Rasputin is long. Like, really long. Uh, I think one of the reasons why, when we think about Rasputin dying, we think about it being a long drawn-out, torturous affair is because Yusupov has a long, drawn-out, torturous writing style. Here is a small taste uh, with Yusupov leveling a gun at Rasputin after attempting to poison him. Quote, Rasputin stood before me motionless. I slowly raised a revolver. 
Where should I aim? At the temple or at the heart? A shudder swept over me. My arm grew rigid. I aimed at his heart and pulled the trigger. Rasputin gave a wild scream and crumpled up on the bearskin. For a moment I was appalled to discover how easy it was to kill a man. A flick of the finger and what had been a living, breathing man, only seconds before, now lay on the floor like a broken doll. On hearing the shot, my friends rushed in, but in their frantic haste, they brushed against the switch and turned out the light. Someone bumped into me and cried out. I stood motionless for fear of treading on the body. At last, someone turned the light on. Rasputin lay on his back. His features twitched in nervous spasms. His hands were clenched, his eyes closed. A blood stain was spreading on his silk blouse. A few moments later, all movement ceased. Unquote. Obviously, that's not the end. Obviously, that's only part of the long, drawn-out Rasputin death scene. Yusupov writes a doctor examines Rasputin and then declares him dead, but you know how this story goes. A few minutes later, Yusupov continues, quote, Then a terrible thing happened. With a sudden violent effort, Rasputin leapt to his feet, foaming at the mouth. A wild roar echoed through the vaulted rooms, and his hands convulsively thrashed the air. He rushed at me, trying to get at my throat, and sank his fingers into my shoulder like steel claws. His eyes were bursting from their sockets, blood oozed from his lips, and all the time he called me by my name in a low, raucous voice. No words can express the horror I felt. I tried to free myself, but was powerless in his vice-like grip. A ferocious struggle began. Great use of the passive voice, dude. The devil who was dying of poison, who had a bullet in his heart, must have been raised from the dead by the powers of evil. There was something appalling and monstrous in his diabolical refusal to die. I realize now who Rasputin really was. It was a reincarnation of Satan himself, who held me in his clutches and would never let me go till my dying day. By a superhuman effort, I succeeded in freeing myself from his grasp. Unquote. After that, Yusupov writes about how Rasputin escapes, and the murderers pursue him outside, shoot him again, confirm that he's dead, and when they meet the police, Yusupov writes that, yeah, they just tell them they killed Rasputin. They're just, say it out loud. Hello, local law enforcement, we just committed a murder. And, yeah, Yusupov wrote that thing, sold his book, shopped it around, and dined out on the fact that he was the guy who killed Rasputin. In part because of his lurid memoir, viewers recognized the fictional Chegodayev as being based on the real-life Yusupov. Hence that New York Times quote that I read you earlier. I also suspect, but cannot prove, that the Yusupovs were mainly angry with MGM, not because the film existed, but maybe because they weren't able to make money off of it, at least not directly. Had MGM bought the film rights to Felix Yusupov's memoir, or hired them as consultants, or allowed them to make some cash off the murder of Rasputin one more time, I think they would have had a very different response. Though I do want to keep in mind that Irina Alexandrova in the film is portrayed as undergoing a trauma that did not really happen to her, and that could also have irked them. But I'm not entirely sure that this lawsuit from some down-and-out Russian nobles was entirely in good faith. And the lawsuits, which happened in multiple countries, 
uh, paid out. A United Kingdom court awarded them $127,373, and in the U.S., they settled with the studio for $250,000. That's in 1933 money. In current 2021 dollars, those two sums add up to about $7.9 million, which is a lot of money for a company to lose because a pair of exiled nobles from a dead regime got mad at your movie. After the lawsuit, MGM removed opening text in the movie that claimed that some of the characters were real and still alive. They also altered the opening credits to note that both Prince Chegodiah and Natasha were fictional characters. They also removed the scene which implies that Rasputin sexually assaulted Natasha slash Irenia, though the version I watched still showed Rasputin hypnotizing her with his... I don't know, Rasputin powers? By the way, in Rasputin and the Empress, uh, Lionel Barrymore's Rasputin has hypno powers. He is portrayed in numerous scenes as being able to uh, hypnotize the prince, which is how he's able to get him to stop bleeding. In real life, it's probably just because uh, Rasputin didn't give him aspirin like the doctors did. And, and aspirin's really bad for, you know, anyone with hemophilia because it's a blood thinner. So it's probably as simple as that. But in this movie, like, he uses his hypnotic power to take control of Natasha in kind of a creepy, inappropriate way, and it is plenty unsettling without adding in implied sexual assault, honestly. Since then, nearly every movie has a disclaimer proclaiming that everything on screen is fictional, even if it obviously isn't. But does this work? Does putting some legal language in your credits actually prevent lawsuits like the one the Yusupovs filed against MGM? Curiously, the answer is no, it doesn't. Simply proclaiming a film to be fictional does not make it lawsuit-proof. In 1987, a psychiatrist named Jane Anderson claimed that a 1979 film of The Bell Jar, Sylvia Plath's semi-autobiographical novel, defamed her. The Bell Jar is only kind of sort of true, semi-autobiographical and all that, and Sylvia Plath originally published it under a pseudonym as Victoria Lucas. It is fiction based on real life, originally published under a pseudonym, and yet it was considered factual enough to defame a real person. Anderson claimed that in the film she was identifiable as a character called Joan, who in the movie tried to get the protagonist to form a suicide pact. This detail of the suicide pact was not in the book. The movie also implied that the character was a lesbian, which Anderson also claimed was defamatory. Which, it's not. There's nothing wrong with being a lesbian. If there are any lesbians listening to this podcast right now, you are valid. Anyway, though, Anderson settled her lawsuit with various companies involved with the film of The Bell Jar for $150,000 in 1987, And because I always like to adjust for inflation, that's just over $366,000 in 2021. All of that despite the bell jar being based on a novel that was partly fictional already, and the film did include the all persons and events are fictitious disclaimer. That language in the credits did not prevent her from suing various companies involved with the movie and settling with them. And of course, all movies are fictitious in a way. Obviously, Lionel Barrymore hamming his way through a portrayal of Rasputin is an act. 
And I'd be the first one to tell you that Hollywood historical epics play fast and loose with all kinds of facts. As much as I love Lawrence of Arabia, it is not a good and accurate portrait of T.E. Lawrence or the Middle East in the early part of the 20th century. But still, this disclaimer rubs me the wrong way. To pretend that fiction does not draw on real stories or events seems to be an affront to the idea of art. Stories reflect and refract real experience, and storytellers do that deliberately. There is agency there. There is a point of view. There is a very human process of retelling and retelling and retelling. That's not a coincidence. We all know it. We all know that it's deliberate. But, thanks to a pair of annoyed Russian nobles who escaped a revolution, a little bit of copy in the credits of every single Hollywood movie pretends otherwise. And as always, we are a listener-supported podcast. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to support the show. Uh, our show is written, edited, and produced by me, Joe Streckert. Uh, our website and visual assets are by Sarah Giffro in Upswept Creative. Uh, we are recorded, edited, and everything in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>